Welcome to Stemivers Podcast Episode 44. In this episode, Peira talks with Celinda Corsini. Celinda is a passionate and innovative educator with a commitment to developing bold initiatives in education to equip students with the skills and competencies they need to thrive in our ever-changing world. She is a blended learning expert, having conceptualized and developed flipped learning for the language classroom in isolation in 2011 by embracing 21st century technologies and skills. She is a project-based learning practitioner and had the privilege of receiving more than 12 months of intensive mentoring in project-based learning by a PBL expert from the world-renowned PBL school High Tech High in San Diego. Her passion has inspired and continues to inspire her to design interdisciplinary programs that go well beyond the syllabus content and create challenging and authentic learning experiences about positive psychology, prejudice, social justice, holograms, book creation, illustration, disruptive museum experiences, the purposeful use of social media and digital technologies. Celinda is currently working as an inquiry leader at St. Luke's Catholic College, a next-generation learning community in Sydney's Marston Park that is committed to designing and establishing the new normal for preschool to post-school learning. Celinda believes that her role as an educator is to set up the conditions for deep, active, engaging, personalized, independent, and collaborative interest and strengths-based learning. This is Stemiverse Podcast, Episode 44. Stemiverse is a podcast produced by Tech Explorations. Our mission is to help educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. Whether you are a professional or casual teacher teaching in a classroom or a parent or caretaker teaching at home, this podcast brings you the knowledge and experiences of practitioners, academics, entrepreneurs and lifelong learners who are passionate about education and strive every day to help our children prepare for life in a world of radical change and why not abundance. This podcast is brought to you by Tech Explorations, a leading provider of educational resources for makers, STEM students, and teachers. For a limited time only, go to texplore.com slash stemiverse and receive Peter's latest ebook, Maker Education Revolution, a book about how making is changing the way that people learn and teach in the 21st century. Well, Celinda, thank you for joining us on Stemiverse. It's a nice morning here in Sydney, about, uh, I think, 8.30 approximately that time. How are you this morning? I'm fine, and thank you for having me. How are you going? Uh, good, good. Uh, I like uh, morning interviews. Our brain seems to be working better. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree, and I've had my coffee too. Awesome. We're good to go. So. <laughs> yes. Could you take a few minutes and tell us a bit about you? Just a quick introduction. You can go as far back as you like in the past. Um, I'm more curious, of course, to know what brings you to education and maybe uh, the short version of how you became a teacher and uh, perhaps your favorite projects that you're working on at the moment. 
Okay, so I think the moment um, that brought me to become a teacher was in my year nine maths class. Um, we used to work in groups and I remember that I used to love helping my group members and just explaining things to them. And um, one day, one of my friends in the group actually really hurt my feelings when she said something about, um, oh, you just love showing off and showing us how good you are at maths. And I was really upset because it wasn't about that at all. I just mm. enjoyed explaining things to people. And I think that was the moment that I realized that um, I wanted to, to, to teach. So you're good at explaining concepts that other people find difficult and that was a gift, right? Or there was a, a talent that you had? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if it was a talent, but I did enjoy it. <laughs> so, mm. and yes, they did. Yeah. They did understand. And um, although I didn't take up maths teaching, I ended up tutoring maths um, at uni. And I remember absolutely loving every minute of, you know, these tutoring lessons I had. But at the same time, I was trying to steer away from teaching because I got a very high ATAR and um, I guess my family and, and just really a lot of people, I just felt the pressure to do something that matched my ATAR, if that mm -hmm, makes sense. Mm -hmm. yep. And so I didn't enroll into a teaching course straight away. I, um, I actually enrolled in advanced science course at uni, but I just kept going for... Uh, humanities and rather than the science and um, ended up doing a um, honours year and then <laughs> I just went I just started a master of teaching because um, I couldn't stop fighting that oh. that urge to get into the industry yeah to get right. into teaching so quite interesting why did you th uh, decide to pursue say a uh, university education that was closer to your ATAR rather than your you know, your urge as opposed to become a teacher that you had uh, a few years earlier. Was it like peer pressure, perhaps, uh, family sometimes is uh, saying these things? Um, yeah. I, what was it? Family. It was family. Mm. And, mm. and I remember one auntie in particular kept saying, you know, you need to do law or something. You can't, you know, you can't do arts or can't do teaching or can't even do science. And so I saw that advanced science had um, required a high ATAR and I um, stupidly enrolled into that. <laughs> mm. This is very interesting, right? Did you speak to any teachers perhaps uh, prior to enrolling into a university course, especially that year nine day or time at school when, you know, the idea popped into your head? Did you perhaps discuss this idea with a teacher to get their perspective? No, I didn't. And we really didn't have access to the type of um, advice and counselling we mm. have we offer these days at school. So it was really just, um, you know, something that I was dealing with myself yeah. and really didn't talk to anyone about it. I, I didn't even talk to my family about it. I just, you know, felt that pressure, got a sense that I was wasting my ATAR and yeah, try to, to do something about it by, mm. by enrolling in that advanced science course. All right. Well, that's a great story. Uh, could you tell us what happened after you realized that you are meant to be a teacher? Like, man, I'm not really sure that's the right word. I don't believe in destiny and stuff like that. But let's say you decide that you should really go back to teaching after you've made a big investment in your yeah. studies up to that point. Uh, I'm sure yeah. none, none of that is wasted, right? You had a science degree, you had science education, which is great as a teacher, but then you decide to move back 
to your passion, which is teaching. So what happens from that point onwards? Well, actually, I changed advanced science almost immediately. So by mm. the second year, I was in an arts degree because <laughs> with the advanced science, I kept going for, you know, humanities. I really loved English uh-huh. literature. Then from English literature, because of chores, I became fascinated with Italian literature. Mm. And um, I didn't want to do Italian because I was bilingual, having lived there as a child for some mm. years. But I wanted to do the literature. So then I basically, my majors became English and Italian. And then you get to the point where you think, well, what do I do with this? I've now majored in English and Italian and now what what next? So I thought of becoming a university lecturer. Mm -hmm. Again, because of that pressure of, you know, you can't become a teacher with a high ATAR, but just didn't interest me. Didn't interest me and that's when I enrolled in uh, Masters of Teaching and I loved it. I mean, the course wasn't fantastic, but I loved the teaching. I loved in particular coming up with ideas for teaching. And I remember at uni, they used to call me the ideas woman because (laughs) I would just, you know, during, you know, little group brainstorms, I just have so many, not necessarily good ideas, just a lot of them. And that became, and still is today, my favorite part of teaching is actually coming up with with ideas for for units. Yeah. Great. So, these ideas, were those just coming out like organically because of your built-in interest in becoming a better teacher and you know, as, as you were doing with the mathematics, explaining things better so that others can learn? Or at that point, were you exposed to different teaching and learning methodologies, things perhaps that other people were doing that influenced you to explore these ideas? How did it start? Because I know later in life you you started researching a lot of those things. You even went to to America to become a mentee, right? Uh, we'll talk about that later. So how did that start at that point? Um, it was actually I didn't go to America. I had a high tech mm-hmm. high person come here. But oh, what happened better. at that point? <laughs> what happened at that point? No, I actually wasn't exposed to to too much at all in terms of other methodologies. At that time, I have to admit that the um, the master of teaching wasn't fantastic. Also, internet wasn't a big thing yet, so it was really hard to actually access uh, professional uh, reading on such topics. So I guess I just had those ideas. I just got the ideas being, um, I guess, uh, given a particular task, you know, given some constraints and some parameters, my mind, that would just trigger my mind to, to think of things. In particular, if I was with a group, my brain works best when I'm talking to other people. And so mm-hmm. it just all, you know, all the ideas would come out. Great. Um, I wanted to ask next, uh, what was the first, say, one or two years of your life as a teacher now? I suppose uh, you did your training, then you went into uh, school, you became a, a real teacher. What was it like? Uh, I loved every minute of it. I would look at my watch and when it was close to three, I'd feel upset that, you know, the day was almost over. I hated weekends because I just couldn't wait to get back into the classroom. Yeah, I was truly in my element. Yeah. So that was, it, was, it was heaven, right? Teacher it heaven. was heaven. <laughs> Teacher heaven, yes. <laughs> You've read which, the article, yeah. Yes, which actually brings me to the article that uh, I read with a lot of interest. So the, the article name is Why I Left Teacher Heaven for PBL. And of course, I'll have a link of this article in the show notes. I wanted to ask, first of all, is Teacher Heaven a real place? It was for my first seven years. 
I have to say, about my first seven years. I was on a really steep learning curve at that point. Mm-hmm. It was teacher heaven because I didn't have any behavioural issues with the students. They were really motivated. Um, so, yeah, there weren't any serious challenges. Like all the work I did, I felt that it was truly rewarding. You know, there are always moments of frustration, of course, when, you know, not all the students would would do the work or put in the effort that you wanted them to. Mm -hmm. There was, you know, report writing, which I hate, playground duty, which I hate, marking, which I hate, all of that. But um, overall, to me, it felt like teacher heaven for those first seven years. Wow. That's like where people actually want to go, right? Uh, but you eventually decided to leave. <laughs> yes. It was too much yes. for you. What happened? Uh, what happened was it got boring. So I am addicted to learning. And so those first seven years, I was learning so much. What happened was I was an IB teacher mm-hmm. and um, my students were getting really, really good results. And so uh, what happened was that my subject started to attract a lot more students because there was a reputation. You do Italian, you'll get Mm. an IB7, which is the top grade. And of course, it it wasn't about that. It was about my students were really hardworking, but just, you know, the students, it almost became a rumor in the school, do Italian, get a seven. And so Mm. what happened was I started to attract so many students that I had to run two year 11 classes and two year 12 classes each year. And that filled up my load with just IB, ab initio. It's a beginner's Italian course, extremely uh, rigorous, but still I was teaching the same course over and over again. Um, what also happened at that stage is that I think it was 2011, I came up with flipped learning before I even knew what it was. And so I came up with you know my own flipped learning model and it was really successful in that the um, grades improved even more and the students, again, I had a reputation for that as well. And so I began teaching in the same way over and over again. Now, I tweaked my program, you know, for a few years, but it got to the point that it wasn't worth tweaking anymore. Like the changes were just very minor and I was teaching the same way and got really bored, but I couldn't change what I was doing because it's what the students wanted and I felt the pressure to, you know, why would you change something that's working so well? Yeah, and there was a curriculum, right, as well that you had to stick by. Correct. And because it was an 18-month course, and it's a worldwide course and everyone else has two years for it, but in the Southern Hemisphere, we only have 18 months, I didn't even have the room to experiment. Like I couldn't say, oh, you know what, for a month, I'm going to try something different because that month was so valuable and I just couldn't risk it. Yeah. Yeah, because it was, I understood that in that position, it was about the results and I wasn't comfortable with that. I felt that I was teaching to an exam and it went against what my teaching philosophy is all about. And um, that's when I just had to, you know, be brave and and walk away from that because it wasn't what I wanted. And I remember in my last months, you know, walking to class and not enjoying it at all. It's just, it was It had become routine and I didn't like it. So at that point, you were basically counting down the days, right? Before that last term would be done. I I literally was, yeah. I was counting down the days. Yeah. So you got out of teacher heaven. Uh, For anybody listening, I recommend you read that article because it's uh, a lot of really uh, valuable 
information there about how you made the transition and why. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about flipped learning because I believe that's one of the reasons why you decided to leave teacher heaven and try something new. And I think yes. um, flipped learning was one of those things. Can you tell us a little bit about what flipped learning is and how you in particular implemented it? And uh, sorry, just one more thing. Was flipped learning the th- what you did after you left teacher heaven? Yeah. Okay. So the thing that I need to first say is I came up with the model of flipped learning before I knew what it was. So it's, mm-hmm. um, I guess the way I did it was very much to suit my needs and my philosophy at the time. So what triggered that for me was uh, I was proofreading an essay for my husband who was doing a, a master, uh, no, a debate at the time. And there was a line in one of his essays that said something about in this Google era, the role of teachers has changed from instructor to facilitator of learning. <laughs> and reading that, it really triggered something in my brain. And I thought, oh my God, like we've been standing up here talking like an encyclopedia all these years, but gosh, things are on Google now. Like we can't continue doing that. And so I realized that I had to stop focusing on content and focus more on skills. Mm -hmm. And it sort of triggered months and months of thinking, how do I do that? How do I do that in a beginner's language when the students don't even have, you know, the language to, to search something on Google? Because you can't teach yourself a language without having the language to, to do your keyword searches in. And that's when I thought the only thing that would work was for me to provide them with, you know, the, the resources, the websites. At that time, there was nothing available you know, nothing ready available. So I thought I'm going to have to just make my own. Hmm. I'm going to have to make my own website. I'm going to have to make my own videos. And because I imagine it was going to be a scary thing for students not having a teacher in front of the class explaining things to them, I realized that I had to personalize those videos. I had to, in a way, enter into their homes and they had to see me on those videos. So I also made a very conscious decision at the time to to have my face appear in the videos hmm. just to give them that support. So I built a, a website and the website, it had three very simple, it had a very simple structure. What we're going to learn, just usually one or two sentences. Then I had what you need to know, which uh, was the content. So I had grammar explanations. I had a Google Doc with all the vocabulary list. And then I had the videos of me explaining the grammar, had useful language. And then I had your to-do list. And that was all the activities they had to do in preparation. So I had all, um, I had a code. If it was an orange activity, they had to do it for homework. And my orange activities were rote learning tasks. So learn, learn and memorize vocab, do your grammar exercises, mark them, come to class, sit a quiz so I can assess, you know, the learning. And then in class, we worked on skills and they were coded as blue on the website. And this is uh, the website, um, the italianabenito.wordpress.com, is that right? Correct, yeah, yeah, that's the one. I was playing with that. Uh, it makes Italian a uh, much easier language to learn oh, than good. I thought. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so you basically built your own learning management system because you wanted yes. to take advantage of these technologies, like Google is one of them, right? But you wanted to give some structure to your students who then would proactively learn something and then you could use the class time to build on that learning. Correct. Right? It, it, that's, that's in a nutshell what happened, right? So that's what a f- flipped learning system looks like. 
Correct. Yeah. So how did that evolve over time? Are, are you still uh, working on something like this? Are you still building up this website or others um, like that? Yes. Yeah, so um, I, in the school I have now, we need to use their LMS. But what it did then do, I guess I, aban- I continued to use it for seniors. So when I moved to my next school, I had an HSC class. So I built an HSC version of my website and created a new content and recycled some of, um, of the old content. But with the juniors, I didn't want to do that. So with the juniors, I wanted a blended learning approach. So I felt that they wouldn't have the motivation or the um, self-discipline to do something like flipped learning. And in addition to that, I was really sick of flipped learning. Like it was very yesterday for me. Um, I was ready to, to move on. I didn't like flipped learning because despite having more time to focus on the skills, it was still very traditional to me. It, you just it was just flipped, but you know, essentially it was still traditional teaching and it wasn't good enough for me anymore. So what I did with the, the juniors and, and at this time I was always also uh, really wanted to experiment with PBL. Yep. I um, started uh, using PBL as my main methodology and I was simply using, you know, the online environment to, to support that. So you moved into project-based learning at that point? Yes. Right. So... I've got a few questions about that, actually, because that uh, PBL also features in that article. But uh, what was your first project like? And was it something that you developed or perhaps something that you borrowed from somebody else? What was it first time like? Okay, so the first time I actually did attempt it in teacher heaven in, my, mm-hmm. um, in a senior class, and I just took a quick three-week project that I made up. And it was a complete flop. It was horrible, <laughs> terrible. <laughs> I had I had read um, the whole high tech high manual yeah. on how to do PBL, the entire book, highlighted notes and all. Oh god, I got it so wrong. Um, and so yeah, it was it was pretty bad. I attempted again uh, with the year ten class. Now let's keep in mind that I'm a very critical, like I I'm very critical of myself as a teacher. So. Let's say that from my point of view, it was another flop. At that stage, I had the privilege of um, having a feedback session on that very project um, with um, some staff from High Tech High Mm -hmm. who had um, come to our school for a week at that stage. And um, we did a, a protocol to evaluate that particular project and listening to my colleagues' feedback, I guess it wasn't a complete flop, um, but You're still, too harsh on yourself. I am very yeah. harsh, but I, I still, I still disliked it very much. Um, again, it was my idea. The but I think the true PBL, PBL um, happened in that second school, and I was lucky enough at that stage to have to have that mentorship from uh, someone from High Tech High. And so I was able to co-design my first PBL unit, mm-hmm. uh, my first successful PBL unit. I was able to to have, you know, guidance throughout. I was able to actually observe this teacher run some protocols with my class and yeah, then after that, I, w- I was ready to go. Wow, well, we've got a lot to explore here. First, uh, just in case 
at, at least one of our listeners doesn't know about this. Can you tell us what is High Tech High? So it's a school in San Diego, but what's special about it? So High Tech High was the, I guess, the first school to uh, use project-based learning as their main methodology. And it's considered, I guess, one of the most um, famous schools from that point of view. And in this school, students learn practically every subject through project-based learning and many of the subjects are integrated. Mm. They also provide uh, training for teachers and have a lot of um, resources online on their website. Mm. Yeah, I've got a, I think a full chapter, this part chapter in my book about High Tech High. It's an extraordinary place as well, one place I'd like to visit uh, when I go to the US next time. Um, so that's quite extraordinary. Uh, there's uh, projects there can be fairly small but also fairly large as well that can go for like a whole term. And you've got teachers like that teach history with teachers that teach science and they can come up with projects that borrow elements from both former called disciplines. Students then in teams implement the project. Is that what it's like? Maybe give us an example if you can. Um, yes. Yeah, so I'm um, just trying to think of, of an example. First of all, the projects usually start at last two terms. So that's one thing that I found challenging. I was doing um, term-long projects because I had to stick to, you know, the Australian curriculum and timeline. And I was really struggling to, to get it done by the end of term. And when I was um, explaining this to my high-tech high mentor, he explained that there was a reason for that. And, and, and in fact, you know, in high-tech high projects last two terms mm. because you want to go deeper into the learning. Yeah. But we're actually doing something similar now at my current school where um, we combine uh, subjects and produce projects with two or more subjects. So an example, because I can't think of, sorry, any high-tech high examples, but one that uh, we'll be doing uh, next term, we're combining maths and geography. Um, it's called the CAFE Project, and it's a spin-on a project I did uh, two years ago at my old school. And um, uh, students have to design a CAFE for um, we're hoping to involve the local Stockland Moor because they're about to build mm -hmm. um, near the school and um, they will need to use various mathematical concepts such as percentages, ratios, volume, area, perimeter, etc., to design a cafe inspired by a landscape, yeah. um, a geographical landscape. So then you've got a bit of art there as well. I can imagine there's design issues there. There's obviously the mathematics there's yes. practical issues as well of, yep. you know, safety around a cafe, especially if it's a public spaces. Do you find that as a designer of a project, uh, when the project actually starts and students work on it, there's all sorts of other things that pop up that you hadn't thought of before? <laughs> oh my gosh, all the time. Yeah, all the time. And so... Um, there's one uh, one main rule that uh, in the high tech high um, guide, and it says, "Do the project yourself first. And um, we tend to skip that because yes. of time constraints, but it is so important. And when I have invested the time in doing that, I've had to modify my projects, and my projects have really improved because of it. And there's one in particular which was uh, really essential for me, and it was um, the ebook. 
uh, hologram project. This was a project for Italian. I had a group of mixed students, mixed abil- uh, not mixed ability, but mixed experience with the Italian language. Some were native speakers, some, you know, only had done a, a few years of the language. And um, they had to create an ebook based on an Italian historical figure. And um, we were exploring the potentials of um, of ebooks, and that's why they had to have a hologram and some other uh, technical um, elements. And anyway, so I thought I'd do the project myself first. Luckily, so I researched. Um, uh, I think it was Marco Polo, and I had pages of information. And the ebook had to be a narrative. It wasn't meant to be an, a biography. It had to be a narrative. And so I remember looking at all this information and saying how am I going to turn this into a narrative? Like I was absolutely stuck. So at that point, um, the inspiration for the project came through a book I had purchased for my own kids. And it was a book on um, uh, Leonardo da Vinci that I had Mm -hmm. bought in Italy. And it was a narrative about him, but you learned so much from that narrative because obviously it was, you know, based on true facts. And so I thought, let me try and contact the author. Let's see um, if, um, you know, he can give me some advice on on where to go next, what process he followed. And so um, I went on LinkedIn and Facebook and I thought, you know, let's, let's just try. And um, he actually replied and he sent me like a, a massive email and there was, you know, and I, and I explained to him what I needed. I needed some milestones, some benchmarks to, you know, some steps to get my students through this process. And he sent through nine steps. And, um, but what it also provided, aside from structure for my PBL, I then asked if he could critique the first chapter of my students' work. And for them, knowing that a real author in Italy hmm. was going to read their first chapter, you know, the pressure was on and they um, produced really, really good work because they knew that someone, aside from, you know, the, the teacher, the teacher yeah. yeah, was actually going to read their work. And I think that's the main ingredient for that PBL. Is, and I, yeah. yeah. That is so important, isn't it? Like, I know that at High Tech High, uh, they've got uh, an exhibition at the end of each term, I think a permanent exhibition as well of all the work that students have produced. So students know that whatever they make, whatever they create will be seen not just by their peers and the teachers, but the public as well. And that is, as you said, it's a very strong motivation to actually do a good job. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because, you know, we're too comfortable with our teacher, <laughs> with our, stu- you know, with our peers. And, you know, I would argue we're too comfortable with our parent community mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. And the easy thing is to just call in the parents. The easy thing is just to present to the rest of the school. And it's a challenge, but I would argue that we need to really find an audience that is more authentic than that, an audience that is truly invested in the product that the students are making because I think that's when they're, that's when the motivation comes, when they know that they have, you know, a real author um, judging their work and not mum and dad. I think that's very true. Uh, it, it links to another thing that you wrote in your article where you're saying that when you design a new PBL unit, or, sorry, by the way, before I forget it, I just wanted to say 
as a parenthesis on what we were talking about earlier, that I very often like to change the term PBL into EBL. And EBL stands for experiment because I find that never two projects are the same. Yeah. Even when I do small projects with my students, I run a boot camp for teachers teaching the Arduino. And I've got projects that are very small, like they take one hour to complete. And still, even though I thought I've seen everything, there's always <laughs> a new variation of what comes back. Absolutely, And yeah. that's with well-defined deliverables, right? So there's always a variation possible in a project. So anyway, EBL. So I just wanted to say when, uh, that you mentioned uh, or you wrote in your article that when you design a new PBL unit, you intend to read beyond the scope of your subject, right? Yeah. Could you talk about that? And uh, what do you mean by that? So, yeah, I guess uh, I consider that one of my um, main principles, my main philosophy is to teach beyond the boundaries of my subject. So, I've uh, up until um, last year uh, been uh, just an Italian teacher and I wasn't satisfied by that. I thought that I wanted to do more than just that, particularly thinking back at all my years in my first school where I was just teaching to an exam. So, I think, okay, I have this opportunity to teach Italian, but what else can I teach while still teaching Italian? So Italian is going to provide the context, but I want to go beyond that. I want to teach students skills that are going to be useful for their future beyond, you know, just language skills. And I want to incorporate other subjects as well, because I think interdisciplinary learning is so essential these days. Mm. We need to, students need some assistance in making those links between subjects because they're so used to learning things in silos. So when I think of a, of a project idea, I'm never going to limit it to just Italian. I think, what else can we explore within this? So if we're looking at the, the e-book hologram project mentioned before, mm-hmm. we have technology in that. We have, you know, literacy in that in, in terms of uh, narrative, text type, text type. You know the the possibility of and, and the the opportunities of a new medium of an ebook. We have history for the historical figure or science if it's someone in science. And um, the cafe project was you know design, maths as well, pitching skills, presentation skills. So when I do a project, I first of all try to emulate something from the real world, a task that a, you know, a professional would actually do in the real world. And in the real world, we're never limited to one subject. Mm-hmm. Even if we're in a particular field, you're never going to use one single subject. And so that, that's what I try to do um, in my projects. Yeah. Do you, by design, do you also integrate like a peer review process? And by the way, I'm saying just simply show the outside world what the students have done as part of the project. Is that a way to also stretch yourself and learn from the project? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that do you mean providing that authentic audience for the project? Yes, exactly. To tie it back to what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, no, absolutely. As I said before, I think that's the, the essential mm. ingredient mm. when you do have that outside audience for that project. One for the students, but also as a teacher, you actually see your project in action. You see the a real response to what your students have produced. Yeah. And so even the simple thing of um, my students uh, in year seven, they they wrote a, uh, created a picture book in Italian. And then we went on an excursion and um, we read those picture books to a class of year two students and to see the smiles on the on sure. the on the children's faces and then to read the reflections of my students after the excursion 
the buzz, the excitement of actually having had an impact on other people through their product. Yeah, that's that's, that's amazing. The, isn't it? Uh, that's one way of converting somebody from a consumer to a producer or prosumer at least. Uh, I made this. <laughs> There's nothing like yes. it. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and the pride, you know, that they're feeling yeah. that. And even and when things go wrong, when they're not proud of it, when they're embarrassed by it, <laughs> there's so much learning in that as well. What a, what a life lesson that is in itself. Uh, I'm proud of all my bloopers. I actually document yeah. them and I post them on the internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, especially when smoke uh, is produced. Or little. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I had one of those effective. a couple of weeks ago, put it on my Facebook page. It was good fun. <laughs> yeah, and it's a good approach because I mean we're telling kids learn from your failures, but you know we need to be we need to model that as well. Yes, so, yeah. absolutely. Uh, it's like what you don't know, uh, which is just as important. Actually, realizing what you don't know, which is just as important as knowing what you know, because at least you know what to Google, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> what, what question to ask? So I think that's important. Another thing I wanted to ask was about curricula, right? So I remember when I was a university lecturer, which was not that long ago, so it's easy to remember, still fresh in memory. Uh, I had the same problem uh, with you, after, which is basically boredom and um, lack of uh, stress, like the good stress that you feel yeah. when <laughs> you are learning something new. My biggest problem then was that I had to stick by the curriculum that was uh, defined by somebody else and the exams were coming. So you had the responsibility of just making sure that the students pass. It was a primary concern uh, based on the curriculum. So we call that the curriculum tyranny. I think you've used the term somewhere in one of your writings as well. But I think most of us see that as a constraint, right? And I think you've got a way of turning that constraint into an opportunity. So uh, is this a fair assessment? And if that's correct, what's your method of turning this tyranny into an opportunity? Yeah, so first of all, I shy away from PBL in year 11 and 12. Mm-hmm. That's the, however, was because I was restricted to those 18 months. Yeah. When I moved to HSC and I had two years, I was a new HSC teacher. I hadn't really taught it before. So I wasn't in the position of experimenting at that point. But I do believe had I continued, I would have done that in um, 11 and 12 as well. Fine. But just to play it safe, 7 to 10 is safe. And um, we don't have exams. We are the authors of all the assessment tasks mm. in 7 to 10. <sighs> but what I do is I do look at the syllabus and I obviously have to reach all those outcomes, but it's my mindset. I don't see the syllabus as a constraint. Mm. I actually see all the syllabus outcomes as parameters and parameters and constraints in general make you more creative. And I observed this in particular. I was a fan of Project Runway, TV show um, about designers. And um, every episode they had to design one or two garments, but it was always a challenge. And they, they had to, for example, I don't know, design clothes, just using things from a supermarket or hardware store. And what I observed was that these restraints, these constraints, sorry, really made the contestants a lot more creative. Mm. And it got me thinking about, you know, about this mindset in general. And I certainly 
struggle almost now to come up with a unit if I don't have those parameters. So the syllabus is telling me what topic to teach, um, what skills to teach, and then I embellish it with all my own agenda of 21st century skills and integration. But it is my starting point and it is the springboard and it is what triggers my creativity. Yeah, so I think that... Yeah. Well, Celinda, you know what you are saying about these constraints actually helping you to design a better project and those are any kind of constraints including curriculum constraints remind me of what Joko Willink said about in one of the books that he wrote so Joko Willink is an ex-SEAL Navy SEAL officer and uh, he's written a book about the exact same topic, how having constraints actually freeing, it gives you freedom because it, it tells you how to operate. If you have no constraints, you have no context, right? It's much harder to create something that is uh, specific and that is good. So that I think that's just the mindset, as you said, it's... Uh, a good place to begin for any one of us, myself included, who feel that curriculums are bad. I'd say curriculums are actually good. Based on Absolutely, that. Yeah. yeah. So the next thing I'd like to ask is about engagement, right? So we've got a, a former guest, uh, I think episode number six, let me check. So episode number seven, sorry, episode number seven, Tim Heineke back then. He's written a whole book about student engagement. I'd like to check with you. What is the level of engagement of students when they are working in a project compared to you know, the traditional style of teaching? I guess it would uh, depend on, on the project and I've had mixed experiences. Hmm. In general, I would say that they are a lot more engaged, They're definitely more engaged, but something else happens, which I'll talk about before, but let's look at the positives. Really engaged, I'd say when I walk in, it's like walking into a workplace where the kids are busy, it's noisy, but mm-hmm. it's on-task noise. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest proof or evidence I had about the engagement level was um, with one particular project that I was doing with the Year 7 religion class two, three years ago. And um, I was in a meeting with the, the principal of the school and um, I actually got to class 10 minutes late. And when I walked in, they were all doing their work. They all knew what to do and were on task. And that really had never happened to me before in the Year 7 class. Um, They're usually there, you know, um, playing, sitting around, talking. One, because the teacher is generally telling them what to do at every single stage of the lesson. And secondly, because they're not really interested in going ahead with the work. So this demonstrated two things, that they had ownership and that um, they were truly in control of of the learning and and they knew exactly what to do as, you know, any good team in in an adult workplace. So that's uh, the the project, I suppose, once they have ownership, they don't need the teacher to do much for them, especially to tell them what to do, right? So they become, they, they drive the project from a point onwards. Correct. Mm. And it's just about putting in some structure. So you have, I don't know, some deadlines, particularly for drafts and um, peer critiques. But otherwise, yeah, you don't have to stand up and do too much, particularly once you've set them off and, you know, you've introduced the project. And that's something that I need to improve as a teacher in that I'm still spending 
but only interestingly, interestingly enough, only in in Italian, which is you know my specialty, I s- often spend too long in setting up the project. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, when I'm teaching other subjects in which I'm not an expert, we get straight into the project almost immediately. Right which I think is a lot better pedagogically. Right, yeah. You don't want to drag the beginning. You want to, while you still have the attention of your students, to just drive them straight into the meat of the project instead of, you know, let's spend an hour talking about it <laughs> instead Correct. of doing it, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's all in the art of what I call setting up the conditions for learning. Yeah, right. Rather than standing up and, you know, explaining everything to them. Because they will discover it anyway. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, likelihood is that when you are standing up, talking to them, they're not listening that yes. much. <laughs> Some other thing. What is the attention span of a teenager these days? What, five minutes? Yeah. You've got to pass the message within those five minutes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, if I, if I understand right, PBL is, is not really a, a silver bullet, right? You mentioned that there's a, a good window of opportunity in high school, perhaps up to year 10, to do a lot of PBL and that window starts to close once uh, in later years because of the pressure of things like the HSC or other exams. Uh, is that a fair assessment? If, if it's not a silver bullet, like should teachers see PBL as a tool in the tool belt, perhaps a primary one, like a, a super tool perhaps, but nevertheless a tool? Um, I would... I would say that in my experience, I couldn't use PBL in 11 and 12 because of particular context that I was in, 18 months, high-performing school, and in the second case, I wasn't experienced enough to do PBL in the HSC context. And I say that because with this year 11 and 12 exam, once you become familiar with it as a teacher, you understand how it works. It's a game. Yeah. And you start to understand where you should invest more time in the program and what parts you can get away with. Um, I guess you know how to shed the content. And in shedding the content, you can find more time, more time to do things such as PBL. However, at the same time, an experienced teacher, uh, teacher experienced in PBL and in the, the, the year 11 and 12 course could find a way to do PBL successfully and, and, and they have teachers have I just didn't get there Um, but I don't think I don't think it's not possible I just didn't have the experience to 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 do it right so there's no fundamental reason why you can't do PBO at any stage in a a student's life in school and and beyond obviously but since we're talking about school now but you perhaps need to adapt it to the needs of each year of the student perhaps and uh, the curriculum but it is possible and fundamental reason why you can't Correct, yes. Yeah, awesome. It's good to know. Um, so, Celinda, I was looking at uh, your website, pblprojects.wordpress.com, and you've got uh, a lot of documentation about projects. Uh, I suppose some of them are past projects, some of them are current projects that you're running right now. And I see a method behind all this. So, you've got a project description, you've got context, time, objectives, hurdles, and so on. You also have reflections from the teacher, yourself, I suppose, and students, like uh, Imogen, for example, year eight, uh, Melita, year nine, and so on, who write about their experiences. So, I wanted to ask you first, if you have a method behind, like a formal method behind 
the development process of a project? Yes, so I start with my non-negotiables for my subject area for the you know syllabus document. Mm-hmm. I, I look at what um, content do I need to teach and what skills do I need to teach. So I start from curricula. Then I immediately think, how do I make this authentic? So what authentic tasks or what activity that real people do in the real world could fit in with this particular context provided by uh, my subject area. I try to think of an audience, what audience would care to see and to interact with this type of product. Mm-hmm. And I then move on to think about how can I incorporate other future work skills within my project? How can I incorporate other subjects within this project? So I gradually start asking myself various questions to improve the quality of the project. Oh, but you start with the constraints, right? <laughs> Absolutely, oh, yeah. That's, there you go again. <laughs> again, that's that's my starting yeah. point. I can't even think until I yeah. know what do I have to teach. So that gives you yeah. the, the freedom to build on after that point. Yeah, yeah, Very it's like, yeah, it's like if I say to you, I want you to draw a picture for me. Yeah. And you're like, um, what do I draw? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that uh, interesting mm. when you introduce constraints, people say, oh, what about my freedom and my creativity? <laughs> yeah. Where exact, exactly the opposite actually happens. Great. Yeah, but they don't know it. So <laughs> no. you need to push through that resistance yes. and there is resistance. Um, yeah. And only in the end do they realise um you know, how, how successful they've been and, and appreciate hmm. the constraints that you actually <laughs> placed on them. That's amazing. Uh, what about the reflections? Uh, I suppose the project finishes, then you sit down with a cup of coffee or tea um, and you think about how did that, that go? I remember when you did your very, very first project, you felt it was terrible. So I suppose your teacher reflections would reflect that. Uh, but in there somewhere, you said, I should have done this, I should have done that, I should have done something yeah. differently. And then students as well uh, will provide their reflections. Now, what in particular are you looking for in, in a reflection? Are you looking for everything that went well, everything that didn't go well, areas for improvement? Do you have any anything formal in the reflection or whatever comes to mind? So when I ask the students to reflect, I ask for an open reflection. I um, provide some examples of questions, but I don't even write them down because I want them to just write. Mm. Um, Because otherwise they tend to write what they think you want them Uh, to write and you don't get an honest reflection. What I naturally look for first, and that's just a reflection of who I am as a person, I look for the negatives. And that's because... I tend to do that in myself all the time. Mm-hmm. I want to see where can I improve, where can I improve? So I, I look through that and, and I try to zoom in on that and that then informs tweaks and adaptations and, you know, that's how I modify programs that I want to run again. Yeah. But it also informs projects in general, any future project. I internalize that critique and and just modify my teaching practice accordingly. But I also then go back after I've, you know, felt so demoralized by (laughs) all the critique I'm focusing on. I then go back and look for evidence of success. So the thing about PBL is that the learning is so different from traditional learning that it's really hard to recognize. So when I'm running a project, I 
walk around the classroom and I'm literally biting my nails thinking, is this working? Are the students learning? Because you don't have a test to measure it mathematically. It's really, really hard to assess and it just looks so different that you don't, you can't recognise it. You really can't. So the reflections then show me that learning. So that's when I then focus on, hold on, let me see what did they learn. And when you see it written in their own words, that's when you see that it has indeed worked and that the learning is so much richer than any test, any essay you can imagine. Um, So, yeah, so after that I go back and and I just look at that as evidence of their learning. Yeah, that's very true, isn't it? Uh, There's no formalized test to test a student's learning from a project. So it does require a bit of confidence on the teacher's part to be able to stay the course and, you know, not abandon it halfway through because they're feeling like the students are not learning, they're just having fun. They're too yeah. happy. <laughs> yeah, they're too happy to be learning. And there's one quote that I have on repeat in my head to help me through those moments, and it's from um, David Price's book, Open. Mm-hmm. Um, and he writes, no student ever had his entire education ruined because of a learning innovation that didn't come off. But I can show you plenty of students whose curiosity and imagination were strangled by being trapped in a repetitive, uninspiring, unimaginative learning enclosure. And I just repeat that. I repeat that constantly. I'm not I can't ruin I can't be ruining them and that helps me get through the project and then I read the reflections and it's like yes it was worthwhile. Uh, that's such a good quote. Uh, I've got to look that up. Uh, I've got to say I'm still recovering from my years of formal schooling. Uh, yeah. It's painful. In, but I, I think I'm making progress lately, but... <laughs> yeah. And that's, you know, that's one of the things that, that, that motivates me because it makes me sad to think that so many students leave school feeling dumb, feeling they're stupid. And it's only because we didn't recognise their talents and their strengths. And we only really reward academic intelligence and it just saddens me. And what I love about PBL is that it allows all students to shine. And I guess what keeps me going, in addition to that quote (laughs) that I have on playing my head, is when I think back at students who were labelled as academically weak, but through some of the projects they did with me, Oh my God, did they shine? Like, I actually thought they were gifted, gifted, highly intelligent. And yet they weren't feeling that way. And their parents didn't think they were that way because traditional teaching wasn't giving them that opportunity. In fact, they were failing in traditional, you know, methods. So that definitely is my motivation as well. I think back at those students and and that helps me to continue through the challenging times. That's so true. Like so many of us feel exactly the same way, but I I feel that it's taken way too long to recognize that the situation was bad and still is bad. Yeah. It's such an entrenched way of teaching that even though we know it's the wrong thing, we still do it like many other things. Yeah, and it almost took me away from teaching. I almost abandoned teaching because I was so frustrated yeah. by that, by that lack of innovation, by that lack of willingness to change and, and to adapt to the times. Yeah. And I saw it in every other context, every other field, and I thought, why isn't it happening in education? And, yeah, I, I, was, I was almost ready to go because I had lost faith in the system. Yeah. It's so bad. Yeah. I've got one more question that... Uh, I'm struggling myself to answer. Group work or independent work? And uh, when one is better than the other, vice versa? 
Yeah, so I just wrote a blog on that. Um, I think I saw that. That's why I'm asking. Yeah, yeah. So um, I laugh because, yeah, it's as I explained in the blog, that internal debate. I think individual work, when we go that way, I think it's because it makes us as teachers happy. Everything is nice and neat. Mm -hmm. We know what John did. We know what Julia did. It's easier to measure. And it's going back to this, you know, measurement thing. Exams are easier to measure, mm-hmm. but how effective are they? How effective is independent work when in reality we are social beings and we work in teams, we live in teams, yes. um, we raise children in teams. So I would say definitely group work, but we need to, I, I think, need to be more explicit in the way we set up group work. So my error has been just putting kids into groups and hoping that things would work. I think that, yes, they, um, they'll they make mistakes and they'll learn from that. But um, having experienced group work myself now and having realized that, yes, sometimes it works really well, but sometimes there are other people with, you know, different personalities, um, different ways of doing things, and it doesn't always work out well. So sometimes you just need a bit of assistance, a bit of scaffolding. So that's something that I'm trying to explore right now. How do I not, uh, I guess not teach explicitly, but once again, how do I set up the conditions for group work right? so that it can be successful? So let's say uh, group work wins, uh, but with restrictions and caveats, right? Got to manage it. Yes. And I think one of the the main things is having an opportunity at the beginning for the group members to really understand each other and in particular, understand the strengths that each member brings Mm -hmm. to the team. Mm -hmm. And then based on their strengths, their interests and their expertise, decide on how they can contribute to that team. And I guess that's what we do in the real world. You know, we're all different on a team and that's how we delegate our work. So perhaps that's just something I'm considering in, you know, these days. Yeah. So just like everything else, like plan, don't just, as you said, don't just get uh, students together in a group and hope it's going to work. You do have to plan for it first to make sure that it works well and benefits every single student in the group. Yes. And it's interesting having conversations with some students about that recently. They themselves identified that that was one of the problems with their group work in their own words and and none of this was fed to them. They said, we just started. I didn't bother to learn what skills these two people had to offer. I just Mm -hmm. delegated Mm -hmm. and then I was upset because they didn't deliver. Uh, And that was a year five or year year five, year six student. So... That was pretty insightful from them. Yeah, we need to, to learn from them sometimes. So they do take responsibility then, or oh, the opportunity is that they take responsibility not just for your own actions and how you work in the group, but uh, how the whole group works, right? Everybody has got shared responsibility if the objective is not met, even though you've done your bit, right? You can't say, I'll yes. blame everybody else. No. I guess n- normally, and um, this has even happened, you know, uh, with me in an, in an adult um, mm. uh, working team where they assume that collaboration means 50-50. There's yeah. maybe, I don't know, uh, let's do the marking. I'll do 50% of it. You'll do 50% of it. Um, let's plan 50-50, you know, the lessons. No, that's not 
real collaboration. Well, that's not effective collaboration. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, in this, it, you need to have differentiated collaboration is what I call. Yeah. You know, what do you have to offer and how can you contribute with what, you know, what your strengths, what your expertise and, and interests are. And I think that the um, end product will be a lot better when everyone's working to, to their strengths and certainly the morale would be better as well of all team members. Some may be uh, challenging the terminology instead of calling it group work, maybe we should call it uh, partnerships. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Learning partnerships. Yeah, because, you know, that's right, because your mindset about group work has to change as yeah. well because we automatically just think 50-50. Yeah. It's not about splitting the work, as you said. It's uh, Yeah, it's not about splitting the work. No. And the objectives are different to that. Yeah, differentiated splitting. <laughs> mm, yeah, great. Let's, uh, I'd say, let's move into rapid fire questions, uh, which just means quick questions on my part. Yeah. I'd like to know if at all you have people that are particularly influential to the way that you think and teach. It could be uh, authors, for example, it could be you know, scientists. Could be your mentors. Um, one would be the book I mentioned before by David Price Open mm-hmm. yeah. that really changed the way I think about teaching and really gave me the courage to to do what I really wanted to do, mm-hmm. prepare students for the real world. Um, the other person would have to be um, my uh, mentor uh, originally from High Tech High, Jake Plaskett, who mm-hmm. now works in a school in Victoria and who worked with me both at MLC School in Burwood and Rosebank College in Five Dock. I was lucky enough to have been mentored by him, but we've also continued to to work together to bounce ideas off each other, to critique each other's projects. And so that's sort of an ongoing professional development. And finally, just being in a school now, St. Luke's Catholic College, um, it's a new startup school in Marsden Park Mm -hmm. and having the opportunity to co-teach there, I'm getting influenced by colleagues daily. It's a a, a form of 24-7 professional development for me. That's awesome. So you colleagues, your caring colleagues are influential <laughs> in the yes. way that you think and teach. Absolutely. Because, <laughs> yeah, I see them, see their teaching, they see my teaching and we're co-designing every single day. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. Yeah, if you have that from your colleagues, are you so lucky? Yes. Things, uh, it just helps you grow and you never... Do you think that you are in danger of, you know, reaching the state of mind back then at the time that you left Teacher Heaven? Is there a risk that you see ahead? Uh, not in the near future. And I have <laughs> yes. to say, it's it's thanks to the school I'm at now. And it was, I consider this school my saviour mm. in that um, I, I didn't think I'd see a school like this in my career, a school that's so forward thinking. Yeah. And because we are integrating subjects, uh, we're taking on an approach that is inquiry and PBL and, and it, we're not actually even naming it, just being innovative in the way we do things, but in particular because we are co-teaching. So just that opportunity to learn from my colleagues every single day, I don't think I'm going to get bored of that. I'm not going to get bored of being supported in all my crazy ideas. In um, I think in one of my blogs I mentioned the fact that I finally feel normal. <laughs> I've um, I've been, you know, I've felt crazy in my other schools. I felt like people thought I was insane um, because of the way I, I wanted to teach. And I felt that I wasn't 
misunderstood. I was I felt misunderstood and I felt embarrassed and ashamed about my methodology and my philosophy. So it's great not to feel that way and to be <laughs> and just to be supported in all my crazy ideas. Yes. People are probably thinking that you're such a slacker. You don't want to, to teach. You just want to play around with things. Yeah, and yeah. And they, <laughs> I look, I've had critics, I've had to have meetings and closed doors just because of the reaction other colleagues would have to my projects. I've, I've been accused of, of cheating um, because they felt I was doing assessment tasks in class time just by, you know, yeah. not understanding what, what I was doing. So, it became quite challenging as well, you know, just being um, almost having to hide. Yeah. Yeah, having to hide. I, I, didn't, I don't like that feeling. Well, that's great. You're in a much better place. But, yeah, you, I suppose you have to go through a period of struggle until you can find your way and... Uh, oh, absolutely. It's you know, very... Belong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, any advice you'd like to give to new teachers, not specifically STEM teachers, but, you know, a young person finishes uh, their teacher training, enters the workforce as a teacher. What would be, that say, uh, one or two pieces of advice that you would give them? I would say try all the wonderful things you've learned or thought of um, mm. at uni in your years of preparation. Don't revert back to the way you were taught at school <laughs> when you run into your first challenges be prepared for challenges. It's not going to be easy. And in particular, when you are proposing something new, and I hope you do propose something new, be prepared for uh, students to almost, you know, reject and fight back because you are challenging them. You are asking them to do something different. And students sometimes are a bit like sheep. They like doing the same thing over and over again because it's their comfort zone yes. and you're taking them out of that comfort zone. So don't um, don't be discouraged by that. Don't revert back to old ways of teaching. You've, um, you've got a fantastic opportunity here. You've been trained to do things in a different way. So mm. go ahead and do that. Yep. Stay the course. Learn from your mistakes. Yeah. Uh, do it again. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Great. Great. Um, if people would like to get in touch with you and um, ask you about all the projects you're working on, ask your, your opinion on projects that they are designing, how can they do that? What's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Um, so v- via uh, my uh, Gmail, Celinda mm-hmm. Corsini. C-E-L-I-N-D-A-C-O-R-S-I-N-I at gmail.com or even via uh, my Twitter. Yeah. Um, cannot remember my own Twitter. Uh, I think it is uh, prof- yeah, Profcell. Just can't remember the, where prof- I put cell. the capital P-R-O-F capital C-E-L. There we go. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're very active on Twitter. Yeah, I've slowed down recently because of, um, it's funny, I'm so engaged and challenged at work that um, <laughs> I need a break from all of that in my home life. So I don't, I, I always need to be careful of burning out. It's happened to me once or twice before. And so yeah. when I'm getting all the challenge I need at work, I start to be a bit quiet on Twitter just to, you know, set some boundaries for, for that, you know, for home life and family Absolutely. life. Absolutely. Yeah, that's important. Like pacing and separating, you know, work from uh, everything else, which is something that I cannot do. <laughs> I've got uh, to disclose yeah. that. It's important. Yeah. <laughs> I work at home, so 
uh, it's very hard when you work at home to have this separation. Yeah, so absolutely. It's a problem we're working on. I should also mention uh, to our listeners that they should definitely visit your website, uh, the especially pblprojects.wordpress.com because there's uh, like a, a wealth of information about PBL there. So I'm going to have that in the show notes as well. And hopefully I'll be able to um, uh, soon add to the resources there based on all the projects um, I'm doing at, um, we're doing at the new school. So yeah, a lot more to add, but I'm just waiting to to finish and reflect <laughs> before hmm. um, adding them to the website. Yeah, that's great. Oh, we'll keep an eye on it. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for your time, Celinda. I really appreciate it. I wish you a lot of happy projects ahead and lots of learning. Thank you. And thank you for having me. <laughs> all right. Bye-bye for now and have a good day. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. That's all for this episode. The notes for this episode that include links to many of the resources mentioned and information on how to get in touch with Celinda are available on our website at txplot.com forward slash pay forward slash STEMiverse. Each episode comes with its own page on the Tech Explorations website and a goldmine of information in the notes. This STEMiverse podcast episode was produced by Tech Explorations. Do you have any questions or suggestions? Would you like to nominate a friend or colleague to be our guest? Please email us at pa at txplore.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, STEMiverse. That's S-T-E-M-I-V-E-R-S-E. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next time.